Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush and this is the New Statesman's Politics Podcast. In this episode, we'll be asking what kind of Chancellor Rachel Reeves would be. We'll also be bringing you You Ask Us, but from now on in a separate episode so that we have time to get through more of your questions. This will go out on your feed on Fridays. Let us know what you think of this new format. We're delighted to be joined by our editor-in-chief, Jason Cowley, who's just been to Washington with Rachel Reeves to interview and profile the woman who could be the UK's next chancellor. His long read, The Reeves Doctrine, is this week's cover story. Jason, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, good morning, Anish. Now, tell us a bit about this US trip first. What was she doing in the States? Because there's usually a bit of a cynical feeling among journalists that when opposition politicians go on foreign visits, it's just for the photo op. Indeed. And it certainly was a series of photo ops. She was in New York. She visited the New York Stock Exchange. Then she went up to Washington to meet Janet Yellen. She was in town to meet power brokers, economic and financial. She gave a big set piece speech in DuPont Circle, surrounded by economic policymakers. Of course, she's, it was her first major foreign trip, actually. She'd been to Davos briefly with Starmer in January, but this was her first big foreign trip as shadow chancellor. And of course, it's all about self-positioning, trying to build her confidence, trying to build her profile. But I think she also had a big statement to make, as she did in her speech, which um, got picked up actually quite widely. Yes. And just tell us what that big statement was and what you made of it, Jason. It sounded like to me that she'd been reading our editorials in the New Statesman for many years. <laughs> As you know, for a long time, we've been declaring the end of a certain form of hyper-globalization, the failures of the whole liberal project. And she went to Washington to announce the death of globalization or liberal globalization. There was a qualifier. She, her advisors insisted that she added, as we know it, or as we have known it. <laughs> But nevertheless, I thought it was a major statement, and it's, a, it's about a repositioning for the Labour Party, um, a greater understanding that we've entered an era of geopolitical competition. We on the New Statesman call it an era of geopolitical tragedy, where the world is fragmenting into rival blocks. Globalisation is fragmenting. If it hasn't already died, liberalism is in crisis. And there's war in Europe. 
in Ukraine. And this is a response to the world in which Labour finds itself and aspires to be the next government of the United Kingdom. And her response to this crisis, I thought, was interesting. She coined the phrase securonomics. And I've noticed not just Reeves, but other Labour figures using this word security more and more. What does that mean as an economic vision? She doesn't like the word protectionism, but it is more protectionist. It's a kind of turn towards some of economic nationalism, which was inevitable in many ways after the vote for Brexit in 2016, which was a vote against the kind of certain model of the open economic model or indeed the open society that Blair embraced so enthusiastically. It's about security of supply chains. It's about resilience. It's about working, you know, who owns your strategic assets as a country. And do you want all of your strategic assets to be owned and captured by overseas interests? Some of these are really fundamental questions with which she was grappling before she became shadow chancellor. The work she was doing with Labour Together, some of the essays she's written in The New Statesman and elsewhere. So she arrived in, in, at this position earlier than Biden, you know, what's called Bidenomics as a consequence of the Inflation Reduction Act. And it's all, also all about positioning the UK as a green superpower. This is the rhetoric. This is the positioning. Yeah. And, and leading on what she calls the industries of the future, green technology and the transition to a cleaner energy. These are massive challenges facing not just the UK, but the EU, but the US and China, indeed the whole world. And she's just trying to form a response to it. I don't know what you thought about it, Anish. Yeah, I know. I thought it was interesting, particularly as we've been having these stories out lately about the questions over that $28 billion that Labour says it will invest each year into this green transition. Clearly, there's a bit of a tension there, and you brought that out in your long read, between her more radical vision for the economy, which is shared by a lot of people on the left in general in this country, the need for change, and her sort of iron discipline on the finances, her fiscal rules, her insistence that every single spending commitment is costed. Yeah, that's the sort of contradiction. And one of the, one of the ideas I play with in the piece is a kind of doubleness or dualism, this idea of the two, the two Rachel One and Rachel Two. Mm. And Rachel One aspires to be not one austere and fiscally disciplined chancellor, keep absolute control of day-to-day spending, while at the same time, Rachel Tour is promising transformative, radical, new economic vision, as it were. I asked how that differed from the Corbyn project, which was similarly ambitious in its, in its desire to build a transformed and new economic model, and that's in the piece. But there is a tension, I think, between what Labour wants to do, what Labour is promising to do, And at the same time, their inherent caution, their lack Mm. of confidence, their fear of the right-wing press, their anxiety about the markets. They saw what happened to Liz Truss after the mini-budget and how she was beaten back by the bond markets. So they're very anxious about keeping the financial interest on side, whilst at the same time utterly rethinking how we organize our economic model. So it's, it's a huge ambitious project, but at the same time, will it be imprisoned by Reeves's innate caution? And just on those, that innate caution, Jason, I think one of the key themes that you brought out in the piece is ambiguity. And one of the main constraints that people are talking about when we're analysing Labour's economic policy at the moment is those fiscal rules. If you go through the fiscal rules, they're extremely ambiguous. And we've also got to remember that fiscal rules have been changed nine times in the past 15 years. In one sense, the most important 
aspect of politics in that they dictate what a chancellor can do at a budget, but also a chancellor can also just change them at any point. So going back to the idea of ambiguity, it strikes me that what Labour is trying to do at the moment is just signal to voters what they're going to do. And part of their reticence at the moment to commit to that 28 billion is because they're still fighting for the reputation of fiscal responsibility. So you brought out in your piece, I mean, is there a sort of a necessity for ambiguity at this stage in the electoral cycle? Yeah, all good politicians embrace constructive ambiguity. I spoke to David Edgerton about this, who's a writer and academic who has influenced Reeves. And he said, this is about laying the ground and signaling the direction of travel. But at the same time, they have to, for necessity, be ambiguous. It's open-ended, as is Anusha's right to bring up this pledge to spend $28 billion a year on green capital projects. But when I asked her about it, she was vague or even opaque. She didn't recommit to it. The ambiguity is there. You, they've signaled what their ambition is, what their intentions are, but nevertheless, they've also signaled their desire to be a, a fiscally constrained or a fiscally disciplined government in waiting. Gordon Brown used to speak often in the, in the early years of the Blair government about prudence for a purpose. He, there was a reason why he wanted to keep control of day-to-day spending. And because ultimately his plan was to invest in public services, the NHS, schools, and so on, which indeed he did, that there is a desire, I think, for Labour to demonstrate that they are fiscally conservative in, in, in the best sense rather than reckless. But nevertheless, it's a gamble for them because the country returns to the Labour Party very reluctantly. The Labour Party is used to losing. It's not used to winning elections. It's won very few convincing majorities throughout its history. And they're frightened, they're anxious, they're concerned, they lack confidence. Imagine, Freddie, you continually lose. What does that do to your morale, your self-esteem as a party, your ambitions? And they're grappling with this. At the same time, they've been gifted an opportunity because of the sheer incompetence of the Conservative Party. And the Conservative Party had an astounding majority in 2019, and they've utterly squandered that opportunity. And this is a fantastic an unexpected opportunity for the Labour Party. So they're cautious, but also they're very excited as well. Yeah, and it's also worth pointing out the difference between the economy today and how it was in 97. I think Blair inherited 4.4% growth, debt to GDP was around 40%, whereas people are celebrating now the fact that we might avoid a recession this year when we've got debt to GDP approaching 100%. I think that also speaks to the fact that they are being more cautious and there is less of a sense of optimism about what they might be able to achieve just because we are in a different era and people often say Starm is trying to replicate what Blair did, but the fact of the matter is that we are just in a completely different time. Completely. I bring that out in the piece. I spoke to Bernard Donoghue, who was, he's a Labour peer, but worked as head of the policy unit for both Howard Wilson and then James Callaghan in the 70s. And he said Labour's economic inheritance, if they win the general election next year, will be comparable to what Attlee inherited or close to what, to what Attlee inherited after the Second World War. In 40, it's nothing like the world in which Blair found himself, where he inherited a growing economy and a period of lo- op- liberal optimism after the fall of the Berlin Wall. And a sense, you know, the, you know the argument that the arc of history bends towards progress and enlightenment. Blair ultimately was wrong in having that belief. At least I, th- I think he was wrong. But nevertheless, that was the inheritance he had. And he swept all before him. It will be nothing like that for the Labour Party. After the break, we'll have more on Rachel Reeves. If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on The New Statesman app. 
you can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. If you enjoy the New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Weymouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There were a couple of things I found really interesting about it, Jason. One of them was that, that you touched on was that in some ways a lot of what Reeves is setting out is contrasts with some of the missions that, that the Labour Party is setting out at the same time at the minute, most notably the ambition to have the highest growth in the G7. And there are quite a lot of people inside Labour and outside of it that think that's completely unachievable unless you are prepared to re-enter the single market. I was at an event this week with Neil Kinnock and he made that very point. And the other thing that struck me about it, which you also touched on, was that if Labour is going to embark on this kind of de- departure in a way, then it kind of needs those international allies. And then there are many ways in which the US might be the least reliable of those allies, given the political picture, the questions about Joe Biden's health. And, and then you have people like Ron DeSantis on the march. And obviously, Donald Trump could make some kind of comeback. So those were the things that, that stood out for me. Yeah, Rachel, obviously the uh, election of Trump and a, a second Trump presidency could completely upend the and destabilise the Western alliance. Reeves is alert to that. And she says, even if Trump wins, and she obviously wants Biden to win, Labour would pursue this more resilient economic turn, as it were. On the mission to be the fastest growing economy among the G7, I just find that preposterous because they're committed to remaining outside the single market and the customs union. And also they have no, no control or influence over the other G6 economies. So it's a very, I think it's a very strange pledge, pledge actually. Just lastly, Jason, you touched on it earlier. One of the themes running through the piece is this idea of two Rachels. Mm. So Rachel one, I think you describe at one point as robotic, but it's that focused exterior and Rachel too who is the Rachel that you see behind the scenes and you get a feel for her personality and what's driven her and what struck me really was how emotional she was about the inspiration that she'd drawn from a girl in the year above her at school called Natalie who'd gone to Oxford I think one of the first in her school can you tell us a bit about the Rachel that you saw behind the scenes Rachel too yes there is a the public Rachel that we see through her interviews and her lectures and so on now she can be robotic that kind of grad gridian discipline, Bank of England economist, mm. maybe not as witty and fluent as she could be. Um, but behind the scenes, she's warm, she's open, she's generous, she's kind. She's, her staff say she has a great sense of fun, 
She had a very interesting upbringing. Her grandparents were in the Salvation Army. They were Salvationists. She herself told me that she's a Christian, a religious believer, though not a Salvationist. She was very influenced by her grandparents working in the Salvation Army shop in Kettering. Her parents were primary school teachers. Rachel, our colleague, interviewed Rachel Reeves and her sister Ellie recently about their relationship and their upbringing. Very interesting piece. Worth reading. And she went to a modest comprehensive school. And one day in assembly, I think she was in the fifth, the headmistress said, look, everyone, please pay attention. And can you all think of these two girls who are, are taking the Oxford interview today? And these girls were two years above Rachel. And one of them ultimately got in, called Natalie. But while Rachel was sitting in that assembly, she suddenly thought, wow, is this possible? Can girls from our school go to Oxford and Cambridge? I never really considered that as a possibility. Her parents weren't graduates. They went to teacher training college. She was a teenage chess champion, and she used to play against these very smooth and self-assured and entitled boys who used to talk to her about which Oxford colleges that they intended to go to. And of course, she didn't know what they were talking about. So she said she remained silent. So on the train to Washington from New York, I was talking to her about her school days. And as she mentioned this girl, Natalie, her eyes filled with tears. She was mm. profoundly moved. And then afterwards, later on, I mentioned how moved she'd been. And she felt, again, her eyes filled with tears. She began wiping the tears from her cheeks. And you saw a different, she doesn't know me, I'm a journalist, a skeptical journalist, but I saw a different side to Rachel Reeves, actually, much more emotional intelligence, more vulnerable softer than you might see in public. And she said to me how hurt she'd been by some of the abuse she'd received. She no longer looks at social media as a consequence, although obviously she's got social media accounts, I presume, that are run for her. She made some unfortunate comments some years ago about welfare benefits, which rightly angered people, and she subsequently apologized for them. But she's a much more complicated figure than we understand. She's also, she's very interested in ideas, as well as being a practical politician. She's a genuine intellectual, thinking deeply about the political crisis that faces the Labour Party, but not just the Labour Party of the world, interested in the fragmentation of globalization. She reads widely, she publishes books. And I think she's, she's, she's in many ways the leading intellectual in the uh, shadow cabinet, as well as being, I think, a very yeah. promising politician. Yeah. I'd encourage all of our listeners to go and read Jason's profile in The New Statesman in this week's issue. Thanks so much for joining us, Jason. Thank you so much, Anu. Thanks for your time. Thanks, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. The new You Ask Us episode will be in your feeds first thing tomorrow morning when we'll be discussing Jamie Driscoll and Caroline Lucas. If you'd like to submit a question for us to discuss on a future podcast, you can do so at newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us or leave us a YouTube comment. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Jason Cowley, Freddie Hayward, and Rachel Wimouth. We'll be back tomorrow with You Ask Us. We're produced by Adrian Bradley. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.